God, um, that is the cry of our heart. You are holy. There is no one like you. Would you show us this morning more of who you are through your word? Would you fill us with more of who you are? And would you lead us, God, um, to look more like you for our good and for your glory? We ask that this time would matter for today, for tomorrow, and for eternity because of what you'll do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, good morning. My name is Steph Schneider. I'm on the teaching team, and we are so glad you're here with us this morning. We are wrapping up our time in the book of Leviticus. So I'm really excited to kind of wrap up the last you made it, right? Like, you did it. You did it. And I hope you loved it more than you expected. Um, no, I honestly, I was telling somebody this morning, I hope you get something out of the lesson this morning. I really do. Um, if you don't, I got so much out of my own personal prep- preparation. Um, God has done a lot in me and sitting in these chapters and that's really like all I want to share with you this morning is kind of what he's taught me Um, but I do hope it's been a rich time for you in God's word so um, without further ado final week of Leviticus let's do it okay go ahead and open your Bibles to Leviticus 21 and while you're opening there I just kind of want to do a quick recap a big picture like how we got here okay so let's remember that the book of leviticus comes on the heels of the book of exodus exodus is the book that records god's rescue of his people from egypt he brings them out of bondage out of slavery to bring them in to covenant relationship with him and try to remember a few months back but how did exodus end with the building of the tabernacle, right? They build the tabernacle and the glory of God descends. Um, For the first time since the Garden of Eden, God has come to dwell in the midst of his people. He's come to establish himself as their God and them as his people. And the Israelite people had absolutely zero what that meant just think about it like they had seen him do all these crazy things to like bust them out of Egypt right like they had seen him do all these miracles to sustain them in the wilderness and so that big powerful ruling God had now come to dwell among them to be their God and them to be his people they had no clue what that meant. They had no clue how to do that. What they did know was that God was holy, 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 and they also knew that they were sinful, sinful, sinful. And so the question that had to be on everybody's mind was, how in the world can a holy God dwell in the midst of sinful people and not completely destroy them, right? How could he, he, be their God? 
And then beyond that, they had to be wondering, what did it mean for them to be his people? How were they supposed to live in light of this new identity that they had as God's chosen people? Answer, Leviticus. See, despite the assumptions and kind of the typical posture that we bring to this book, um, the commentator Jay Sklar, he's fantastic and has helped me a lot. And he helped me to realize that the perspective of the original audience, they would not have been bored by Leviticus. Leviticus would not have been burdensome to them. For the people of Israel, Leviticus would have been a blessing. It would have been a blessing to them. A blessing because from cover to cover, God spells out in incredibly clear detail how it is that they can dwell among him, among a holy God, and still live. I heard on a podcast this week um, the sentence that clarity is kindness. And if that's true, which I think it is, um, then Leviticus is really, really kind. Leviticus is a picture of God's kindness. It would have been a gift. It would have been a blessing to his people. Um, So the first half of Leviticus focuses vertically. Okay, It's primarily addressing the people's relationship to God and answering that first question of how do sinful people dwell among a holy God? And so we read about the sacrifices necessary for them to approach God and to atone for their sin. We read about the priesthood, these people who would represent the people to God and who would represent God to the people. We read about um, dealing with impurity and uncleanness. All these things that we talked about resulted from the fall. And then it crescendoed last week in chapter 16 where we read about the most important day of their whole year, the Day of Atonement. Um, This was the day every year that was like a reboot, uh, a day of cleansing and reestablishing the whole system, the whole system from the inside out. The day every year when God's people were assured that their sin had been forgiven. So Day of Atonement, crescendo. And then after that, The book really changes, it shifts its direction, okay? So it shifts from this vertical focus to more of a horizontal focus. And it's going to focus now on that second question, the question of what does it look like to live as the covenant people of God? Um, In light of their rescue, in light of their deliverance, in light of who God has said that they are, how are they? to live, which is obviously still a very relevant question for you and for me, right? Those of us who would call ourselves a Christian this morning, we, like Israel, we have been brought out of bondage, out of slavery to sin and death, and we have been set free by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. We've been brought out of bondage, and we have brought in, been brought in to a covenant relationship with God. So what does that mean? How are we to live? How are we to live as the people of God? And from chapter 17 on, God answers that question. 
And if you could sum it up in like a few sentences, you find it in chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. God speaking to Moses, he says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, so past tense. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you, future tense. You shall not walk in their status. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. How are the people of God supposed to live in light of their new status as his people? Totally different from the world. Totally different from the people in Egypt, where they came from. Totally different from the people of Canaan, where they're going. You shall not walk according to their statutes, their rules, their priorities, their ways. Why? Because they belong to a new kingdom. They serve a new king. And therefore, as his people, they're to walk according to his rules according to his statutes, walking in his ways, with his priorities. Set apart like he is set apart. Holy, to use God's language, holy as he is holy. If Israel is going to be his people, they are going to look really different from the world. And guess what? If you and I are going to be God's people... It means the exact same thing for us. We're going to look really different than the world around us. But I think if we're honest, don't we kind of hope, or maybe even don't we kind of think that that's not really that true? Like surely there's a way that we can be the people of God, but still pretty much look like the world. We can still pretty much do what the world does. We can still pretty much walk according to the world's rules, live with its priorities, love like the world loves, live like the world lives. Just also, we're going to read our Bible, we're going to go to church, and we're going to be nice to everybody. The reality is that is just not the case. It never has been, and it never will be. The people of God are called to be set apart. No longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but daily being transformed, transformed more and more into the image of God. The word that the Bible uses for this is sanctification. And essentially, here's what it means. Just being who we already are matching the substance of our lives with the status that Christ has given us. Our union with Christ has declared us as holy. We are that. Our aim is to now live like it um, for our good, for our good and for his glory that we might display him to the world. How are the people of God supposed to live in light of their new status as his chosen people? Totally different from the world around them. 
So from here, he starts to lay out exactly what that means, exactly how they're going to be different. And he talks about several like large categories of this. And last week, we started with the first one. Basically, the people of God are to be set apart in their conduct. And so in like ways, how we love our neighbor, how we care for the poor, how we treat our employees, um, and our sexual ethics, so on and so forth. God calls them to conduct themselves. God calls us to conduct ourselves in a way that is in step with who he is. And as a result, is often out of step with the rest of the world, set apart in our conduct. So then, as we turn to chapters 21 and 22 today, these chapters are really building on that principle, okay? So let's look at it together. Chapter 21, up until now, speaking about holy conduct, God has really been addressing all the people of Israel, but I want you to look with me at chapter 21 at the very beginning and take note of who God is addressing here. Is it all the people of Israel? No. Look what it says. Speak to who? Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them. Okay, so right from the outset, we need to understand that chapters 21 and 22 are zooming in from the entire people of Israel, the entire set-apart people of God, to the special subset that has been set apart to an even greater degree to be the priests of the people. And remember the role of the priests. They represented the people to God and they represented God to the people, right? So they're the ones who go into the tabernacle where God dwells. They were the ones who got to present the sacrifices to atone for sin. In a way, they were the mediators between heaven and earth, right? between God and his people. It's important that we remember that privileged role that they're serving as we look at these regulations. Okay, so that's the priests. Now let's also talk for a second about the tabernacle, okay? The tabernacle, we know, is the place where God is now dwelling among his people. So in a way, we can say that the tabernacle is both a representation of how things were intended to be in the beginning, so think like return to Eden, how God intended things, and also a foreshadowing of how things will one day be, right? When God is again fully and finally dwelling with his people, a taste of eternity. Okay, so hang on to those two things as we look at these regulations. So when we read things like the priests couldn't have any contact with the dead, except for very close relatives. Um, The priests couldn't mourn in the same way other nations did, which explains like the bald patches, the shaving, the edges of the beard, the cuts on the body. Those were all like ways that, uh, symbols of mourning during that time. They couldn't mourn in the same way. They couldn't marry a prostitute or a divorced or a defiled woman. And then when we go on to read that the high priest, um, the one who actually could enter into the holy of holies, the very presence of the holy God, he had even stricter regulations. Um, He was forbidden from any mourning, any burial activities, even of close relatives. Um, And the high priests were only uh, allowed or permitted to marry a virgin. And then... In verse 16 through 20, we're told that no priest with any blemish, 
So any defect, <clears throat> any imperfection, which would include blind, lame, disability, injury, disease, no priest with any blemish may approach to offer sacrifice. Um, they could eat from God's table, but they couldn't offer a sacrifice. Nor could any animal with a blemish be offered as a sacrifice, chapter 22 tells us, stating that these animals are considered unholy, incomplete, and ineffective to atone for sin. We read all that and we're like, good grief, what is this all about? And I think it's really easy to look at these regulations and find them offensive, um, maybe even harsh, especially for those of us who are affected or have been touched by any of the aforementioned categories that are forbidden. Um, This is precisely the reason why we don't read Leviticus, right? (laughs) But, okay, let's hang on. Let's hang on. Let's lean in here because I think if we can interpret these regulations rightly, if we can see what's happening here, actually, rather than being harsh and hurtful, this portion of scripture is incredibly hopeful. It is incredibly hopeful. Why? Okay. It's certainly hopeful because of the mere fact that God, this like holy, holy, holy set apart God In his great mercy, he has made a way for sinful people to be in his presence and have their sins atoned for. The regulations may be strict, but there is a way. Okay? So that's hopeful. Secondly, it's also hopeful. It's also full of hope, might be the better way to say it, because of the way it so clearly points us to Jesus, doesn't it? Um, Jesus, who will be the ultimate way that God would make to fully and finally allow his people to come into his presence and have their sins atoned for. Jesus, the great high priest who was perfect in every way, untouched by the fall, which all the regulations for the priests, those all were essentially things that were an effect of the fall. Um, Jesus, the great high priest, perfect in every way. Jesus, the greater sacrifice, the spotless lamb of God without blemish, right? Full of hope because it points us to Jesus. But even more than that, this passage is incredibly hopeful in the way that it foreshadows a future reality for us. The one that awaits the people of God when Jesus returns and sets everything right. Here's what I mean. Remember what we said about the tabernacle being a reminder of Eden, the way things were intended, and a foretaste of heaven, the way things will be when God again dwells with his people. So when the priest entered into the tabernacle, it was like he was entering into heaven itself in a way. So think about it. In barring disease, deformity, defect, death, in barring these things from entering, what is God declaring? God is declaring these things, all of these things that are a result of the fall, that were never part of his original intent. These things will have no place in heaven. Nancy Guthrie says it this way, and I love it. When we read that God will not allow a priest with any defect or deformity to enter into the holy place, that is not bad news 
for those of us who have felt the pain of such things in this world. But rather, good news. God is saying that he is not willing to make peace with the effects of sin on this world. He will not forever tolerate disease and deformity and death. He intends to put an end to them. They will not be allowed into his holy heaven. This means that if you have been touched by the pain of such things, you can be sure that when you enter into his presence, you will be healed and whole. All of the effects of the brokenness of this world that have brought you pain will be gone for good. Here in Leviticus, as God lays out the system of clean and unclean, he is helping his people to understand what is unclean because of the effects of sin can be made clean because of the blood of an all-sufficient sacrifice. What is impaired will be made right, what is deformed will be made whole, and all that is made clean, right, and whole through the sacrifice of Christ will one day be made holy to live with him in the fullness of his holy presence. All will be set right. All will be made whole. And together we say, praise God. Praise God. Talk about hope. Okay, so now we're going to move on from conduct required of the priests. And we're going to come to chapter 23. And I want you to notice again, the audience is changing again. Okay, so look at the beginning of chapter 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them. So we're leaving the regulations set for just the priests. And now we're back to considering what does it look like for all the people of Israel to live as the holy people of God. Okay, we talked about the conduct expected for all the people and then the stricter conduct expected of the priests. So now, now God's going to continue to lay out for Israel other ways that they're to live, that the substance of their life is to match their status as his people. Um, so conduct, now calendar. Um, now it's their calendar. It's the setting of their rhythms and it's the stewarding of their resources that is to set his people apart. The people of God are to look different than the world around them in the way that they, one, spend their time, and two, the way that they view and use their resources. And all of this is because their rhythm and their resources are to be centered on him. And it all begins with Sabbath. Look at chapter 23, verse three. Six days you shall, or six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. Convocation just means public gathering, so think like worship service. Um, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling, all your dwelling places. So one day every week, the entire Israelite community was to stop working and step away from business as usual and spend the day worshiping and resting in God. And I want you to think about how this rhythm would have reoriented their hearts to who was the center of their lives. So by weekly observing the Sabbath, 
They were declaring that God was creator, God was sustainer, God was provider and Lord. They were demonstrating dependence on him as they trusted him to provide that day. Um, By weekly observing the Sabbath, they were deferring to his ways over their ways, um, over the ways of the world. He was the one who set the rhythm, not them. By intentionally laying aside other things, they were denouncing idols. They were designating his position above anything else. He was the most important thing in their life. And week after week, as they were tempted to get caught up in the rat race of life, this day of rest was meant to continually draw them back to what mattered, to who was the center. It would have been an incredibly reorienting day. And it would have been an incredibly restorative day for them, an entire day of rest to rest from their labor, their toil, their work, That would have been such a gift, um, such a blessing. And once again, a reminder that they were no longer slaves. Um, They could rest from their work because they were free. A reorienting day, a restorative day, and also a reflective day. Um, A day when the heart of God would have been on display for all the world. So just think for me a bit for a minute about what it would have looked like to the other nations around them when every single week... The people of God would just stop working and spend an entire day resting and worshiping. Talk about countercultural. Talk about being set apart. But also talk about inviting, right? Like a God who commands his people to rest and be restored. This wouldn't have been like any God they had ever known. And I can't help but think it would have been so attractive to a watching world. This weekly Sabbath rhythm of rest and of worship was foundational to Israel life, Israelite life, reorienting, restorative, and certainly reflecting God to the rest of the world. And guess what? It still is. It still is. This rhythm that God has set in place for his people then is still commanded for his people now. We, you and I, are called to to observe the Sabbath in the exact same way for the exact same reasons. We need the Sabbath to reorient us to who is the center, don't we? We need the Sabbath to restore and to strengthen us. And the world around us needs this bright and inviting reflection of who God is, a God who delights in his people and who longs to bring them rest. God calls you and I to live in the rhythm of Sabbath for our good and for his glory. Are we? Are we? If you're not, I encourage you to start. I really do. Yes, because God commands us. That's a good enough reason but also because it's good and because it will bless you. What would it look like for you for the next month to say, okay, I am going to commit to setting apart a day for worship and rest and just see, just see 
what God does with that. Just see if it does not reorient you and restore you. Just see if it does not start to reflect something to the people around you and they start to wonder or ask questions. Just see. Um, Let's be a people committed to honoring the Sabbath and see how it changes us and maybe even the world around us. So after the weekly rhythm of Sabbath, God sets in place these yearly rhythms. So these yearly feasts that you can kind of divide into the first half of the year. So this think spring, second half of the year, fall. Um, so some of the feasts like Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread in the spring, and then the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths in the fall, these were to be absor- observed immediately. Okay? And then some of the feasts, like the Feast of the First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the year-long Sabbath rest for the land every seven years that we read about, the year of Jubilee every 50 years, these were, be, were to be established once they were living in the promised land, okay? But Sabbath, this idea of Sabbath is foundational to all of them. All of them involved stopping from work in order to rest and to worship. All of them were meant to re- reorient the people, reminding them of who God is, of what he had done, so that they could continue to trust him with their lives. And all of them involved placing him at the center, both ordering their time and in stewarding their resources as they brought him the first and the best of their harvest, right? Of their herds, rather than the last and the leftovers. God was worthy of their time and God was worthy of their things. Then, over in chapter 25, we read, not only are the people to observe a weekly Sabbath, a weekly day of rest, not only are they to observe weekly, week-long festivals throughout the year, but the land is to have a year-long Sabbath every seven years. So an entire year, no farming, no work was to be done. Talk about restorative, talk about reorienting, talk about opportunity to rely tangibly on God to meet your needs. An entire year of rest. And then after seven of the seven Sabbath, or after seven of these Sabbath years, so every 50 years, they were to celebrate the year of Jubilee, which like, can we just talk about what a picture of heaven that was? Um, So appropriately named every 50th year, every year of Jubilee, it would be almost like this beautiful reset to the land. So resources like land were able to be redeemed and returned to their original owners. People who had sold themselves into indentured servitude were released and returned to their families. Um, And for the second year in a row, the land and the community would rest. Again, all of this meant to ultimately reorient and remind Israel that God was the center of their lives and the center of their land and to display that to the world around them. And again, while the specifics have changed, we don't still celebrate a Sabbath year every seven years or a year of Jubilee every 50th year, although I might start petitioning for it. I feel like that would be great. 
Um, we don't celebrate the Feast of the First Fruits or the Feast of Weeks. While the specifics have changed, the principle that God is setting forward for his covenant people, that still remains very much the same. He still calls us to steward both our time and our resources in a way that places him at the center and reflects that to the world around us. And that's a question worth considering when we look at our lives, um, especially right now at the beginning of another year. You know, let's spend some time thinking about our calendars, about our rhythms, about how we spend our time. Do these things reveal that God is at the center or something else? Does the way we spend our time look any different than the world around us? And similarly, with the stewarding of our resources and how we spend our money, how we think about our things, what does our bank account and our spending suggest about who is the ultimate owner of all that we have? Are we spending our money any different? Are we using our things any differently than the world around us? Man, don't we want to be people whose lives more and more do reflect God as the sinner? Um, people that the Holy Spirit is transforming in such a radical way that the substance of our life really starts to be congruent with the status that we have as God's chosen people. Obedience with the way we spend our time, obedience with the way we spend our money is a great place to start. Again, not only because God calls us to, but also because this is the way that leads to blessing. This is where we find the good life. And like James said on Sunday, it's not the cheap, shallow, um, health and wealth gospel good life, but the better, deeper, richer, joy-filled, abundant life that satisfies beyond fortune, beyond fame. And that's what God promises in chapter 26. Um, It's really neat what's happening there, and it would have made total sense to the Israelite people. So throughout all of Leviticus, God is essentially setting forth requirements for a covenant relationship. And a covenant always closed with a section detailing blessings that would come from abiding by the covenant agreement and curses that would result if you don't keep your end of the bargain. Um, And that's basically what God is doing here. He's taking this well-known format that they would have known and been familiar with. And he's saying, this, this is a covenant relationship. If you will live my way in my world, blessing and abundance will follow. This that I've laid out to you, this is the path of life. Obedience yields blessing. If you walk in my ways, according to my statutes, Then I will be your God and you will be my people. I will, he goes on to basically say, I will provide for you. I will protect you. You will be fruitful and multiply. My presence will be with you. You will have life and you will have it to the full. Obedience yields blessing. However, if you choose not to live my way in my world, God basically says, 
every sort of disorder, devastation, disaster will result, culminating in defeat and destruction and ultimately in exile and in death. And the way that the consequences for disobedience are laid out, they actually really, I don't know if you notice this, they build in intensity. Um, And it's not because God is an angry God and his anger is just like intensifying, but it's actually, I think, quite the opposite. Um, It's actually because he's a loving father. A loving father who is willing to discipline those he loves in order to attempt to wake them up to the reality of their sin and beckon them to turn around and to return to him, to return to life, to return to obedience, temporal pain now, hopefully to rescue them from eternal pain and devastation to come, which is the end result of a life apart from God. Disobedience brings death. The wages of sin is death. But what does Romans 6 promise us? The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And we see that gospel good news all the way back here in Leviticus in verses 40 to 45 when God tells them that even if they disobey him, If they wake up to the reality of their sin, if they will confess it and humble themselves and repent and turn around and return to him, what will he do? Verse 42, then I will remember my covenant from of old with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I will remember the land. I will remember my covenant with you, and I will restore to you the blessings that I long to give you. Judgment won't have the final word. Grace will. Clear blessings for obedience. Clear curses for disobedience. God has laid out the stipulations of the covenant. He has made known to Israel what it means to be the covenant people of God and presented them basically with a proposal. I have chosen you. I have come to dwell among you and long to bless you and to bless the world through you. I have chosen you. Will you choose me? I have chosen you as my people. Will you choose me as your God? And I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but spoiler alert, as we keep reading, we're going to find out they won't. They won't. Over and over again, Israel won't choose God. They won't be able to keep their end of the covenant. They will reject him. They will rebel against him in all kinds of ways. And they will reap the consequences that God warned them about. But despite all their unfaithfulness to him, he will continue to be faithful to them. Despite all the ways that they will run away out of his abundant mercy and love, God will continue to run hard after them, which will eventually culminate in the arrival of Jesus the deliverer, the one who will hold up our end of the covenant through his perfect obedience to the Father and through his perfect life and substitutionary death on the cross, Jesus would open wide once and for all the way to God, restoring his people to right relationship with him, a relationship based on his merit and not ours, and enacting a new 
covenant, new covenant, a covenant not in the blood of animals, but in his blood. But guys, the new covenant is still a covenant that requires a response. A covenant that still calls the people of God to live a life of obedience and holiness. Not to earn salvation, but because we have it. Not so that we will be his people, but because we already are. Because we are, to, because we are his people, we, just like Israel, are called to live like it. Called to live like him. Holy, set apart, different from the world. Lives that reflect the reality that we belong to another kingdom and we serve another king, a greater king. And he has given us his spirit to enable us to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. We, you know, we actually can be transformed more and more to look like God. We actually can be growing in holiness. Um, The substance of our life actually can match the status that we have as God's holy set-apart people. We actually can do that because he lives in us. And don't we want that? Like, don't you want that? I want that. Um, I know it's not easy to live in obedience to God's ways. I know it's not easy to live different than the rest of the world, or at least it's not for me. Um, It's not easy to lay down my ideas for my time, my ideas for my money, my preferences for my life to live by his. But even if it's not easy, don't we have to know it's better? Um, Haven't we all tried living life apart from him? Haven't we all spent plenty of time conforming to the pattern of this world, ordering our time with us at the center, viewing our resources and our money uh, with us at the center, living in all the ways that we want to live rather than how God has called us to live? And haven't we all found that life to be lacking? Haven't we all found that life to be lacking? Maybe you're sitting here this morning feeling that very thing. We've attempted to live our way in God's world, and at the end of the day, I'm guessing that you, like me, have gone to bed empty and lonely and unfulfilled and knowing that there has to be more. This world way over-promises and way under-delivers. Don't we know it? Every single time. But the ways of God never do. They never, ever do. In some marvelous, mysterious way, uh, somehow when we lay down our ideas for our life and give up walking in our ways and begin to live in obedience to his, we find a life that is more abundant, more rich, more deeply satisfying than we could have ever imagined and definitely than we could have ever manufactured on our own. This is the blessing of obedience. This is the joy of what it means to live as the people of God. And so let's turn our eyes upon Jesus. 
Let's keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Let's live like the people that we are um, in our conduct, in our calendar, in the way we order our time, and in the way we steward our resources, knowing that this way of living, it will yield the deepest blessing, both in this life and in the life to come. And you know what else? It will change the world. Like, it really will. It will change the world if the people of God lived like the people of God. Let's pray. Um, oh, God, we, we love you. We love you so much. And we thank you for Jesus and the way that he opened for us to be your people. Um, would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to live, to live like it? Um, to live holy, obedient lives that we might experience all the riches and blessings that come with a life lived with you and that we might reflect you to the world around us, that many would come to know you and experience those same blessings. Um, as John Wood prayed many, many times, would our lives give reason to believe that the gospel, give the world a reason to believe that the gospel is true? Um, help us, Father. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.